today's episode, Pirates and Privateers of France. Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Henning Hillman, author of The Corsairs of St. Malo, Network Organization of a Merchant Elite Under the Ancient Regime, published February 23rd, 2021 by Columbia University Press. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for the invitation. Very kind of you. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is an interesting topic. Um, piracy in the Atlantic um, and, uh, well, a whole slew of stuff. But um, how did you first get into studying this subject and writing on it? That's a very long story. I tried to keep it short. Mm-hmm. Um, it all started when I was working my PhD back at Columbia University, it just so happens. And that's mm-hmm. where I got my PhD from in sociology. And I wrote a dissertation. This is almost 20 years ago now. Not quite. It was in 2003, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, a part of that dissertation was about um, how overseas companies were set up in early modern England. And I was able to predict who would side among these merchants in the 17th century with either the king or with parliament in the English Revolution. Um, and uh, at the center of the analysis were these overseas trading companies and how people got together and what role these trading companies played um, in these struggles, in these conflicts in early modern England. Mm-hmm. And there was this kind of leftover category called privateers. Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't play a major role in the analysis back then because they consisted only of partnerships of like four or five people in contrast to these big overseas companies. And so I kind of pushed them aside and didn't pay much attention to them. And then it just so happened that uh, my wife back then asked me, so who are these guys, these privateers? And um, and I said, well, they're basically like pirates. This is wrong, of course. They're not pirates. Um, But usually that, you know, uh, gets your attention and people get excited about this. And, uh, and so um, she asked me more about this and then we figured out let's write a paper together on that she's an economist and so we wrote an economic history paper on english privateering back at, back then um, just trying to figure out what role they played and in particular why it disappeared um, it turned out to be a very profitable business back at up until the 18th century, essentially. And there was actually no economic reason for it to disappear. We just wondered, what is it? There are, of course, military reasons for it. But from the economic side, um, it wasn't really clear. And that's how it all started. And we wrote a paper on that, and that appeared in the Journal of Economic History for those who are interested in 2011. And um, I then ventured on and thought, well, it turns out that the, uh, the, the, the primary adversary of the English in the 18th century and also in the late 17th century were the French. Did they also have such an institution? It turns out, yes, of course they did. And um, so my intention then was to do a comparative study of French privateering and English privateering. Um, and uh, I had great hopes for that. Um, I went into the archives and I quickly figured out that this is way too much work for a serious comparative study for a single person to uh, undertake. And I just abolished that task. And then I figured that the the French sources were so rich that they warranted a book on their own. Mm -hmm. And so how 
that's how I came to to study the Samalo privateers in particular. So that was the first source that I encountered, and it seemed to be an interesting setting. So I focused on Samalo, and it turned out to be so much information that I spent nearly a decade mm-hmm. working on them. <laughs> so um, that's the story in in a nutshell. So what? Uh, so for listeners and viewers, um, what specifically? What sort of region and time frame are we looking at? Yeah. Um, this book focuses on the long 18th century, meaning it starts in about 1680 mm-hmm. and continues all the way until the end of the Napoleonic Wars. So about 1815, that's the time frame that I'm looking at. Um, it, it is partly dictated by the availability of data. So um, lots of these data um, are still uh, have survived from this particular period, not before that. And um, after 1815, privateering pretty much disappeared. Um, wasn't pursued anymore for various reasons, mainly because there was no war. Um, that also means there's um, a lack of, of sources. And then it was officially abolished, of course, in 1851 um, with the Treaty of Paris. Mm-hmm. So that's the time frame that we're looking at. Um, the region is France, in particular northern France, and the coast of Brittany. So for those who are familiar with the geography, um, Saint-Malo is a port town that sits right on the coast of northern France, right on the English Channel. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't take much to cross the channel and end up in England on the other side, mm-hmm. which is, of course, the reason why um, this uh, city, Saint-Malo, was um, such a hotbed of privateer back then mm-hmm. they could just prey on all the ships that came across the channel mm-hmm. so um just looking at the uh the beginning of the book um what i was reading you know of course it starts out with uh this this individual sailing off to capture other ships enemy ships i don't know if there was a war at this point going on um but i guess my first question is my big question is the interplay between privateering during times of war and during times of peace and and the effects they had on national relations between france and other countries yeah okay uh that's a complex question of course (laughs) so um first of all a necessary qualification uh, clarification and qualification for those who are not familiar with it um so privateering in these times was only legally allowed and permitted in times of war there has to be a um, declaration of war between countries at the time only with um under those circumstances would governments, in this case a royal government, hand out a permission to their merchants to fit out privateering ships and then go out and hunt uh, mostly merchant ships of the enemy. So there has to be a declared enemy. That also implies that they were not allowed um, under sanctions, that they were not allowed to prey on um, neutral ships, for instance. Neutral rights had to be respected as well. Um, in order to enforce that, you now um, these merchants who fitted out the privateers had to put down um, a security deposit and a substantial amount of money. Um, it's 15,000 livres usually. It's, it's a huge amount. And um, you better not get caught, right, if you deviate from those restrictions, which could mean um, at the end of the day a hanging, mm-hmm. right? You really want to avoid that. So that, that's the major distinction um, between pirates and privateers. So privateering happens only under conditions of war. There's a long history behind that. It didn't always used to be the case. 
Um, but uh, pirates, in contrast, really don't care or didn't care whether there was a war on or not. They were supposedly just preying on anything that crosses their path. That is not the case for privateers. Mm -hmm. Now, in that particular case that you're talking about, um, this is a guy called um, Chateaubriand de Plessis, who comes from an illustrious family. Um, it's an old family in, in Brittany. And most of us are probably familiar with two things when they hear Chateaubriand. One is a steak. <laughs> it's a particular kind of steak that is being prepared. Mm -hmm. um, but, and that steak is um, related to the other person that at least um, students in France will know. That is um, François René de Chateaubriand, the most important romantic writer in France. It's kind of like the, the, the Shakespeare of the um, 19th century in France, a very eminent figure. He um, was also a diplomat, a politician, and he wrote an extensive autobiography, several thousands of pages about his experiences during the French Revolution, the Napoleonic years and afterwards. So that's the backstory. Um, the uh, people that I talk about here are his father, who enabled, in fact, um, his career, and the brothers of his father. They came together to fit out these privateering vessels, and they are a good example of how family members come together to join in a partnership to finance these voyages and then also share the proceeds of it. And um, typically, some of them were giving most of the money um, and owned the ship, and others were the captains on board of, this, of the ship. So in this case, also... Um, it's um, René Chateaubriand, René Auguste, to be precise. That is the father of François, uh, uh, René de, uh, de Chateaubriand. They all have the same name, so that's a bit complicated. Uh -huh. But um, so this guy um, was the main ship owner who bought the ship. And then he asked his brother, which is Chateaubriand de Plessis, and it's also his younger brother to serve as captains on board of those ships and they will go out. So what you see here is, is a separation of the operation. So some people provide um, the money and others actually are involved in the operations of the ship on the seas. So the owners were really on board, in fact. So that's the background of that and then follows kind of an uh, uh, a complicated story that hopefully gets the reader interested in what these guys are doing on the seas. Mm -hmm. So they experienced this really long-winded voyage in the Caribbean. I'm speaking with Henning Hillman, author of The Corsairs of St. Malo. You can find more information about the book at the Columbia University Press website or on Amazon. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. It seems um, just the economic pressures for for a country to go to war seem pretty significant if you have 
you know, if you're basically given license to go out and, and raid and steal at will, yeah. um, you know, why not go to war? What, you know, <laughs> you know, or, or get your, your leader to declare war on both sides. Yeah. I mean, this is a period quite obviously where, uh, war is the rule and not the exception. So this long 18th century from 1680 through 1815, um, is characterized by a succession of wars. Um, in fact, most of these wars are about successions. <laughs> Interestingly enough, no pun intended. So, uh, you have the war of the, uh, League of Augsburg. That's the first one. Um, in, in the late um, 17th century, then you have the war of the Spanish succession, you have the war of the Austrian succession, and then the war where this episode that you're referring to is happening is in fact the Seven Years' War. So also know, I guess, in the uh, U.S. as the French and Indian War. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is in the 1750s and 60s, and then follows the American Revolutionary War, and then the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars. Mm-hmm. So a string of wars happening all the time, um, being fought for different reasons. You're absolutely right. Some of them started because of um, economic reasons. Mm-hmm. In particular, this war where this um, uh, episode takes place in the 1750s is probably the first war on a global scale that is being fought over economic resources. Mm-hmm. Who wields most power over the uh, budding colonies in the Americas, but also in Asia, mm-hmm. um, and uh, in particular in India? That's where um, England and France were uh, strong rivals and set up against each other. Others, uh, other uh, wars were fought mainly for uh, reasons of succession, you know, territory and dynastic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was always um, a, a, yeah, a good opportunity in a way to in- engage in war. And I guess what's also very important to take in mind, it's an argument I try to make in this book as well. This is the time of mercantilism still. And if you believe in mercantilism as an economic policy, then you are also uh, prone to believe that world trade is like a gigantic pie. Mm. And uh, it's a zero-sum game. And the larger the pie is that you get for yourself, the less will be left over for your adversaries. Mm -hmm. So if France takes the largest chunk out of that pie, there will be less left over for England to take. Mm. Um, And um, in these times, so you want to reduce essentially the the trade capacity of your enemy. Mm -hmm. And all the means that you can mobilize are, of course, welcome. And if you have um, private merchants who are willing to fit out these ships, and provide auxiliary forces to your royal navy that means you have helpers from amongst your own citizens to increase your own pie Mm -hmm. at the detriment of the pie of your opponent and you have to pay very little for it as a government Mm -hmm. Uh, i'm not i'm not saying that this is um without any costs privateering of course because there is competition for seamen for instance but by and large the cost uh, the the burden of the cost is taken by these um, private merchants who would fit out the privateers and not by the state. So it's, it's, it's a welcome addition to the Royal Navy for these governments. So what, um, how would um, merchants who are trying to trade across the ocean or, or, or the seas during war, if you know that, you know, I, I, do they go in convoys, you know, how, how do they protect themselves or do they just continue their trade and just hope for the best? <laughs> Uh, 
yeah, that's probably not a good strategy. <laughs> Just cross your fingers. No, I mean, you pointed already out what the options are. Convoys emerge at this time, of course. They probably have been around beforehand as well. The problem with convoys is market schedules. So if you travel in a convoy and you basically have the same goods on board, then, of course, you want to be the first in the port to sell your wares because you will probably fetch the highest prices. If everyone arrives at the same time, prices will go down because there is an oversupply of the same goods. So um, those kinds of market schedules dictate then how well behaved you are in that convoy. And there are all sorts of at least anecdotal evidence that, uh, you know, those ships traveling the convoys try to break out of it as soon as possible. As they near the coast of the destination, <laughs> just try all their best to escape from their own convoy. Voice. That is, of course, not a great idea because then you can fall prey to privateers and also navy ships of your enemy. Not great. But um, at the high seas, it's probably your best option to be protected. Um, the other option is also um, a variant of privateers that I mentioned in the book and also go into some detail is uh, what's in English called um, letter of mark ships. So these are um, trade ships that first and foremost are meant to go on trading, but they also carry a privateering license with them, a commission. So should they encounter another ship and a fight breaks out, for instance, and they take that ship as a prize, then to the extent that they carry a commission, they can take this other ship as a legal prize. And just like uh, privateers, carry it back home to their own port, sell off the uh, the, the, the prize and... Um, keep the proceeds from it. Yeah. Um, if you don't have a commission, then you have no legal entitlement to that capture. That's the problem. Mm -hmm. So that's another strategy. Um, you know, try to take out a commission and become a, a trade and privateering ship at the same time. Mm -hmm. What were the relations between, in France, in this region you look at, what were the relations between privateers and their crews and the Royal, you know, the French Navy? Um, and their crews? Was there cooperation, conflict? Interesting question. So, um, first of all, the relation with the government, I, mean, um, I would say it's a pretty positive one. So it was encouraged by handing out these commissions, mm -hmm. uh, was actually supported, and in particular, the, um, the emergence of Samalo had very good connections to the royal court at the time, at least until the beginning of the 18th century. Um, then this relationship waned a little bit. You know, it wasn't as strong anymore. It has to do with a particular personal relationship on which de this depends. So relationships with the court were generally pretty positive and encouraging. Uh, now, when you mention the uh, competition from the Royal Navy, that's a different story. Um, there were always these complaints from the Navy, not only from the uh, from the Royal Navy, but also from the um, Merchant Marine, that um, privateering was pretty lucrative. So it's, um, I always related to the image of a lottery. For most of these ships that go out privateering, their catches so to speak, um, are not that great. They're not glittering prices, really. But there are few of them who are really successful, and that's what everyone looks at. So it's like a modern-day lottery. Not We all know that not everyone can win, but we see these winners, right? And so we all keep thinking, why not me? It could be me. Maybe I'm lucky, right? And it turns out that the entry ticket is not that expensive also for privateering to to, to buy a license and um, put down the, um, the security deposit. So it was cheap 
to enter this lottery, mm -hmm. but not everyone would win. So, but it was very lucrative, very enticing, and that means that seamen were supposedly lured away from the merchant marine and from um, the Royal Navy. Mm -hmm. So that, of course, didn't go down very well, um, especially also because the, the Royal Navy was also out to capture prices from the enemy as well. So they were competing with each other. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a competitive relationship, definitely. Um, if you look closer at the numbers, however, then this um, Manning problem, as it's been called in the literature, isn't actually as dramatic um, as it's often portrayed by individual people. Mm -hmm. So when you read testimonies from back, uh, back and from the times, then uh, most people would complain in pretty dramatic terms. You know? Oh, we have no more seamen left. They're all gone. And uh, when you look at the actual numbers, it's not really that dramatic at all. Huh. What, what were the nationalities of um, the privateers and, and the Navy people, yeah. or Navy personnel? Yeah, uh, Navy personnel, mostly French. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, because to operate a ship, you need to be able to talk to each other, you need to understand each other. So um, you better have a good command of French, of course, right? if that's the language spoken on board of the ship. So it's really no help to give commands and follow commands if you don't understand them. Um, so first reason. Um, then, so for the Royal Navy, pretty much you have to go to a training. Um, these people are registered as able seamen, and they are required to serve on Navy ships. The same goes for the Merchant Marine. Um, you also have to serve there first, and then you are in these in, uh, roles of able seamen. And for privateers, they could also draw on this pool of trained seamen, but only if they had first served in the Royal Navy. I, I think it's for at least one year, if I remember correctly, and for at least two additional years in the Merchant Marine. Hmm. Only then could they be drafted into privateering ships. Mm -hmm. Now, you can imagine that people find all sorts of loopholes loopholes to circumvent those restrictions, right? Mm -hmm. um, because it was just so much more attractive to serve on a privateering ship because what you, what you would get in return if they capture a price is worth so much more than what you would earn on a regular merchant marine ship, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and the other option is, of course, to also recruit foreigners, um, but there aren't as many. Um, so most of the uh, recruits on uh, privateering ships from Samalo are from Samalo the vast majority, or from neighboring towns. Mm. And the reason is, of course, you know, they have closely knit networks with each other. They know each other. They are kin, also from the same family, um, who have moved to these other places. So there are close connections there. Captains are also recruited either from Samuel or nearby towns. Mm -hmm. The one exception are immigrants from Ireland. Mm. There, is a very there was a very significant Irish expat community in Samalo. These um, Irish had to flee their own country for mostly for reasons of um, religious persecution. Mm -hmm. And they were also devout Catholics. And they ended up in Samalo, lots of them. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they, they fit in well with the uh, community in Samalo, basically because they shared the same faith. Mm -hmm. So some uh, the, the um, citizens of Samalo were very devout Catholics. Mm -hmm. You had no chance to set up your business and to settle in Samalo if you were a Protestant. Um, yeah. They made you convert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, if necessary, they would force you to do so. Mm-hmm. So they fit in nicely. And you see that you have these Irish names in the lists of people. And um, over time, um, these these um, Irish last names um, become more and more like French names. So they changed a little bit. Right? Like so the Walsh, the Walsh become the, the, the Walshay and so forth. And they marry into the French families as well. What about um, privateering, uh, the privateer ships, um, their ability to get repair materials, repair materials for their ships, and also to get weapons, you know, cannons or, or weapons for, for their, their crews? Did they have to compete with the, the Royal Navy and the Merchant Marine a lot for that, or was it plentiful? Um, competition, absolutely, yes. Um, the one thing one has to bear in mind, however, is that these privateering ships um, – vary vastly in terms of their size and in terms of their weaponry. It depends a little bit what the area of operation is. So if you have privateering ships that are large frigates that compete directly with Royal Navy ships, you um, enter into this competition that you've just sketched quite rightly. Um, those are the, the large privateers who would go out into the Atlantic, into the Indian Ocean, um, on long travels um, to hunt for their prey there. Um, but the uh, traditional area for of operation for these privateers was either just along the coastlines and the English Channel, so up the English coast, up the Irish coast. And this is where the Irish um, uh, migrants come in handy because they know their coastline, of course. Mm-hmm. And now they employ the services of these Irish immigrants to prey on um, English ships that travel along the Irish and the English coast. Mm-hmm. So um, local knowledge is very much important. So if you if you operate in these areas, your ships tend to be noticeably smaller, uh, smaller than 50 tons very often. Mm-hmm. And you don't need that many cannons because your main advantage was surprise. So they would go out in the fog. Front. So winter time was the main time that they would operate because there was fog out there. Mm-hmm. They had local knowledge of the coastline, and that's what they exploited. So you actually didn't need that much firepower. Mm-hmm. So it depends a little bit what the area of operation is. And um, the, the further you venture out of these coast areas, the more you are in competition, of course, with the larger Royal Navy ships. Mm-hmm. So looking at the different wars that you mentioned earlier, um, do you see any any big differences for the privateers? Any big differences in um, sort of the the amount of activity they engaged in as a whole, and also their success rates through the various wars? Were there big differences for for any reason? Yeah, um, the reasons are entirely clear, but one can clearly see that the heyday of privateering in Saint Malo, and probably French uh, France at large was at the turn from the uh, 17th to the 18th century. So under um, Louis XIV, basically those wars were the heyday. That's when they were most successful. They also lost the most ships, of course, but that's when they were most engaged. And this peters out a little bit over time. So there aren't that many engaged anymore um, in the War of the Austrian Succession, and then also during the... um, um, Seven Years' War and the American Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. So that peters out a little bit. Um, the reasons could be manifold. Um, um, it could be a strengthening of the Royal Navy, for instance. Mm-hmm. So you have a substitution effect. That's clearly the case. Um, in the English case, I could show very clearly that um, 
opportunities for trade were much more enticing, much more lucrative than engaging in privateering. So that's an opportunity cost argument. Uh, there's much more to be gained from trade than from putting your money into privateering, for instance. And so you would retreat from that business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the particular reason in Saint-Malo that's also very often been found in the literature is that those who have been very successful in these early wars did not reinvest their money anymore in privateering, um, nor in other trade, but what they really aspired to was the life of gentlefolk, of, no- of noble people, noble families. They wanted to become nobles mm-hmm. in the countryside, own large mansions, set themselves up there, and lead the lives of nobilities, of course. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they had very little interest anymore in investing in the risky business of privateering and overseas trade. So you see a retreat there as well. And the kind of the vacancy that they left behind was only slowly filled in later years, and not to the same amount that uh, it used to be the case beforehand. Are there any instances where privateers joined in any naval battles that they came across or did they stay, steer clear of, of major fighting? Um, again, it depends. Uh, I think one has to um, kind of set aside this notion um, of you know uh, dramatic sea fights that they engage in. When I look at the... Uh, so I was lucky enough that I had access to captain's reports. Mm-hmm. So the French government and the French Admiralty required French privateers to keep a, a report, a journal essentially of their journeys mm-hmm. when they ventured out. And um, this was also used in court to determine whether they captured the just price or not. That's why they had to keep these journals. And reading these journals... Um, you get the impression very soon that sea fights were rare. Mm-hmm. They rarely happen. The, the reason is simply that if a privateer shows up with um, significant um, gunpower, then a merchant ship that will hardly see any chance to defend itself successfully would not engage in a fight. I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. You know, just raise their arms and say, okay, take us, that's it. So there's no reason to um, enter into a fight. Now, um, battle participation is extremely rare. In fact, I haven't seen any single instance in the records. Mm-hmm. What we do know, however, are these um, kind of extraordinary stories where this is one guy, um, Duguet Trouin, who is a famous figure in France as a privateer, and he put together an entire fleet of privateering ships, huge battleships. Um, some of them he loaned from the French government. Some of them he put up themselves. He find enough investors, and he sailed off with this fleet of privateers. And he had nothing better to do than raid the town of Rio hmm. back then. <laughs> that was in the early 18th century. Um, he raided the entire town, sacked it, burnt it, took everything out of it. Mm-hmm. And that became a really famous episode. But it's extremely rare case. It's an outlier, and that's why we pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. But it happened very rarely. Um, yeah. I'm speaking with Henning Hillman, author of The Corsairs of St. Malo. You can find more information about the book at the Columbia University Press website or on Amazon. If you like this episode of Military History Inside Out so far, please tap the like button and bullseye the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with military historians or to get daily history book suggestions, 
check out warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want to hear interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and my podcast, Technology and Space. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So, um, something that comes to mind, and maybe it's a totally inappropriate um, comparison, but it leads to a question, which is, you know, I think of the Battle of the Atlantic, you know, modern World War II, yeah. Where, yeah. where trade merchants were sunk. They, there was no, you know, there was rare, any capture was basically just destroy the enemy's material. Did yeah. Anything like that happened in this, in the period you looked at for any reason, where you just sink the enemy and not even worry about prizes? No, not really. Um, because after all, this is an economic enterprise. Mm-hmm. It has a very clear military component because you need gunpowder, mm-hmm. powder, uh, power, sorry, gunpowder and power. Yes, both of them. And, uh, but you also need sailors to man these ships. So it's a military enterprise, yes. But first and foremost, it's an economic enterprise. That's an important point you mentioned there. Um, so owners of the ship have every interest to see their ship coming home after such a venture. Mm-hmm. They want their ships to come home with captured ships, with prices that they can sell, with goods on boards of these prices that they can sell. So they want to make an economic profit from it. You cannot make an economic profit if you sink the ship. That doesn't make any sense for them. So they have every interest to preserve the merchant ship. So they're not going after um, after Navy ships, for instance. If a privateer encounters a Navy ship, the better option is actually to run because uh, in most cases, the Navy ship will be better equipped. Um, I have some of these stories in the book as well. Um, As soon as they encounter a Navy ship, they just say, okay, let's get out of here Mm -hmm. as soon as possible. Um, It's really not worth putting up a fight. However, you have a problem when as um, it's an economic enterprise, yes, but as an owner, you have to hire an experienced captain. Mm So uh, why is the captain in this enterprise? What's his motivation? Most of, a lot of these captains are in there for honor. Mm-hmm. They want to fight. You know, it's, it's a privilege for them. And they come back and being successful captains that kept so many, uh, captured so many important prizes, um, just like those German U-boat captains coming back in World War II mm-hmm. who are being feted as, you know, um, heroes of their country. And the same happens there, of course, as well. So as as the owner of a ship, you want to balance um, between a captain who's daring enough to take some risks, mm-hmm. but who's also careful enough not to risk your own ship. That's the last thing you want to have. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that's kind of a, a fine balance that you have to figure out as an owner, you know, Experienced captain, yes, but not too daring, please. Yeah. So, and this is a a bit beyond the scope of the book, I think. But so the French Royal Navy, if they could still take prizes, that seems to, if you have captains who are taking prizes and coming back, that's time they're not out at sea fighting, you know? So, so was there, 
do you know if there was some kind of balance there? Is that correct? The French Royal Navy could take prizes as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, And um, there's another incentive problem there, of course, um, because, as I said, if you can take a very lucrative prize, say uh, an East Indiaman, an English East Indiaman, full of silk, cotton and all other all kinds of other um, valuable wares, Mm -hmm. then, of course, it's very interesting also for a Royal Navy ship to capture that one, bring it back to France and sell off those goods. Absolutely. They would be entitled to do that. Um, but as you say correctly, it distracts from their actual purpose, which is um, convoy protection, blockades, and sea battles. You know, those are the three things that our Navy ships are supposed to do. They're not supposed to hunt for price ships, but because it was lucrative, there's an incentive to do that. You could um, add to your pay if you capture those prices. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, there's just an alignment problem there. Um, and you try to your best to contain that. On the other hand, privateering ships are not really well suited to help in blockades. They're just too small for it. Mm-hmm. Um, not enough firepower to enforce anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not really great for, for blockades because the interest uh, for convoys, because their interests are very much different. You want to be the only privateer who captures the prey. You don't want to share those, um, those prices with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So why join a, a, a convoy and waste your time protecting others when you could be out hunting? Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, and as I said before, engaging in sea battles is not a great idea as a privateer. So it seems, um, just at, at my initial thought is that based on what their goals are, that the, the Navy ships would be operating in different areas than the privateers. Yeah. Um, and that they would be pretty separate generally, just, just from the sheer fact of what they were doing. Is that correct? Or would they mingle more? Yes, it is correct. But of course, there are opportunities where they could mingle. Uh, so if they happen to be in the same area of operation, say out in the Atlantic, and um, if they happen at the same time upon a merchant ship that is um, of an enemy, of declared enemy, say it's a Dutch ship, for instance, right? Um, then, of course, they would, in this case, be facing the same opportunity and would have the same incentive to capture that particular ship. And therefore, they would operate in the same area, geographically speaking. Right? But you're absolutely right then, uh, operating in distinct areas when we don't think about geography, but about the particular tasks and purposes, again, like blockades, convoys, and um, and sea battles. Then they would have a very... Um, distinct areas of operation. So geographically, they could overlap, of course, but when it comes to the tasks, the genuine tasks they're meant to do, then it should be very separate. Did you come across instances where privateers and um, naval ships both had the opportunity to take a ship and they'd have to figure out who, who, who would take it, you know, who has primacy? Yeah. No, I didn't, unfortunately. I was always looking for these juicy stories, but mm-hmm. um, not really. I do have cases where um, some privateers would join together because they realize they have a better chance of capturing the other ship if they work together. Mm-hmm. And um, then they just figure out how to to, um, to share the proceeds. Mm-hmm. What, kind, you, what, what kind of uh, weapons were the privateers 
um, using on board? Do you have specifics like the types of cannons or, or whatnot? Yeah, so um, swivel guns is one thing, right? Um, regular cannons on the sides, not too many of them. Um, most important, a huge crew, a large crew. Why? Because if you capture the price ship, you have to put a price crew on board, hmm. right? Um, that is important. So um, the relationship of um, seamen to to guns is always in favor of seamen. And then they would have all sorts of handguns and all sorts of... I don't know if you had a chance to look at the cover of the book, um, so I, I picked that on purpose. So they have all sorts um, of weapons in their hands. And these are just pistols, swords. Um, I think one carries actually a broom in the background. I don't know where he got it from, but anything that helps you um, to to give you an advantage in the fight actually was useful. Um, can so, you show the book? You can show the book cover if you have it handy. The book, you can just show it. Yeah, I have it here, but I don't. See, so, yeah, it's you see that? So up picture. here is a guy who is apparently holding a broom <laughs> and trying to hit others with it. Okay. And these guys here are having swords and pistols. And uh, but again, what we see here on the cover of the book, and that's a famous engraving um, from back in the time. <laughs> um, but again, in most cases that we see described in the journals, the captains um, wrote, we do not hear of these kinds of um, sea fights. Um, they rarely happened, in fact, unfortunately. What, what would happen with the, the crews of the captured ship, the captain and the crews of the captured you ship? You take them as prisoners. Mm -hmm. Take them as prisoners. Um, essentially, you hold them for ransom. Hmm. Um, and uh, it, it's very interesting. In the archives, you find these little um, kind of um, stashes of ransom notes that were pre-printed already and the captain's owner had to fill them in. Um, and so you would basically count through, so how many prisoners do we have? And these are notes of ransom and uh, yeah, um, that's one way to make money as well. Um, otherwise, you keep them on board as prisoners. Um, you also need to have um, people who would give testimony of what happened during those fights when they appear in front of the courts at the end of the campaign. Mm. So, um, so essentially, when you have succeeded in the fight, you take the prize ship, um, you leave the, uh, the, the crew on board, you put on board your own prize crew to control them, um, and then you bring them to the nearest French port in this case. Mm. Right. And eventually you will have to appear in front of the Admiralty Court, the price court. You have to produce papers that this is actually a legal price that you have taken. Mm -hmm. um, you have to show an inventory of all the goods that were on board, an inventory of the people that were on board. Mm -hmm. um, then you bring um, a couple of these prisoners um, in front of the court to give testimonial what happened. Mm -hmm. And um, then there will be a judgment by the price court, um, usually in favor of the price-taking ship, of course, mm -hmm. because it's their own court, right? right. <laughs> it rarely runs not in their favor. Yeah. And um, so the, 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 the crew of the taken ship will be still held as prisoners until um, the English government, say, is prepared to pay the ransom and they can return back home, mm -hmm. or they would exchange prisoners. Yeah, that happens as well. Mm -hmm. Because the other side did the same, right? So every once in a while you would exchange prisoners then. Was it worthwhile to keep even the, the most lowly prison, you know, prisoners who were like, obviously the lowest, 
the lowest ranking of the sailors and the crew? Is it worth even keeping them? Apparently so. I mean, you could also, of course, force them to serve um, on your ships afterwards, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an option as well. Mm -hmm. Give them the option to say, okay, you have the choice between being imprisoned or you serve on our ships. Um, that's another option. Uh, the ships you definitely want to take because you can repurpose them. Mm -hmm. um, either in your own merchant marine or you repurpose them for a privateering ship, for instance. Mm -hmm. That happens as well. I mean, that's another reason why you don't want to sink them, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, all the ships that you can capture, you can use for your own purposes and um, it's no longer part of the enemy's navy. So in this sense, yeah, it was worth keeping the ships, was worth keeping the, the prisoners, absolutely. And the, the admiralty courts and the prize courts, were those, so those were all, uh, French Royal Navy courts then that were making yes. these decisions. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 were the members of the court did they get any any percentage or cut of the prize too, or were they, you know? I mean, they that? were appointed appointed bureaucrats, of course. So mm -hmm. they they get a salary from their respective governments. Right. That's for sure. But they have no they don't get any personal return from those cases because i mean that would lead to all sorts of issues where mm -hmm. you would favor some cases rather than others when you see it fit right when there's much more to be gained mm -hmm. well you proceed with those cases of course no but um up into the midst of the um, 18th century the admiralty would take out 10 percent of the proceeds and keep those hmm. okay that was the rule. Hmm. okay um, but of course, sooner or later, they discovered that hmm, if we always keep 10%, we lower the incentives of the privateers, right? Um, so they slowly abolished that. First of all, it was um, only 10, it started out as being 10% of the gross proceeds. So before any administrative fees were applied, that's of course a larger sum than the net proceeds. So they figured out, ah, okay, let's increase the incentives a little bit. So we take out the 10% on the net proceeds. <laughs> after all the other fees were applied. So it's a little bit less. Oh, well, they figured, well, it's still not enough. So, you know, let's abolish it altogether. And where were, were the courts um, present in every port city or was there, did you have to go, did they have to travel? Did the privateer captains or whoever have to travel? Yeah, Samuel also happened to be a seat of the, of the Admiralty. So there was a court there in place, not in every single port town, but in the most eminent ones. Um, so this does also mean that if you are a privateer from Saint Malo, that's where your owner lives, that's where you started your voyage, and that's where your ship is registered. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have to carry all the prices to Saint Malo. Mm -hmm. um, you want to carry it to a French port, and if you happen to be in the Indian Ocean, um, you may want to carry it to the next French port that's in India. Um, you could do that as well. Hmm. That, of course, creates a problem for the sources, right? So we have um, I have only an idea how many ships were actually being sentenced in price ships that were sentenced in courts outside of France. Right? Hmm. There can only be estimates of that. But okay. we do know that that happened. Well, let me, uh, are there any other, I want to turn to how you did your research. Are there any other yeah. themes in the book that we haven't touched on that you wanted to mention? No, I'm, I mean, there's so many stories I could tell, but I guess then we we're going to sit here for another five hours. And they're in the book, <laughs> I guess, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we yeah, can tell, switch topics, definitely. What's that? We can switch topics, definitely. Um, so, 
how did you do your research? Which, which I think you mentioned already some of the archives you used. Um, yeah. Um, so um, I'm a uh, sociologist by training, so I had to learn how historians work um, basically by trial and error. And um, But I figured that sooner enough I would have to venture into archives to get to the original documents in order to set up my data set. Mm -hmm. So I'm a person who works with um, archival data, with historical data, but I analyze them with quantitative methods. That means that I need to take the original documents and turn them into a massive quantitative database that contains numbers mm -hmm. with which I can do econometric calculations. Um, so, but before you can do all that work, you have to go into the archives. And I learned very quickly that you should not go into the archives with the idea, oh, let's see what's there. Yeah. Um, and here's an interesting document and there's an interesting document. Um, if that's your plan, um, it's prone to failure because you will spend years in that archive. You will disappear in there because there's always something interesting um, to be discovered. So you need to have a clear plan. So I started out by saying, okay, what do I want to do? Uh, my idea was, okay, I want to reconstruct the networks that arise from these partnerships. So when people come together as partners, to finance these voyages of privateering, but also in trade. Um, I knew that there were contracts for these partnerships. And this was my main data source. Mm -hmm. So these are written contracts that um, describe what the ship is, what the purpose of the ship is, who is the captain, how large is the ship, how many cannons on board, how many sailors, um, where is the ship, where was the ship supposed to go to, what kind of trade. Would it engage in? Is it slave trading? Is it trade with South America, with India, with China, coastal trade with Spain, or is it private hearing? All this is mentioned in the documents, mm -hmm. together with a date, a starting date, and also uh, well, not quite an ending date, but the last entries, of course. Um, and most important for me, there is included a list of all the partners and the amount of the shares that they contributed to mm. sometimes in terms of money so the the currency was livre tournois pounds essentially so sometimes you have the actual pound amount that they contributed but most often it's the share so it's uh, usually first of all halves but then they could trade their shares uh, with others. So you may initially buy a half in a partnership, mm -hmm. but you may decide, well, I'll keep one quarter of that half for myself. The other quarter, I sell off to another partner. So then you have quarters. And then that partner may say, well, out of that quarter, I may keep an eighth for myself and the other eighth I'm going to sell on and so forth. So you have entries that are a one two hundred and fifty-six share in a particular partnership and um, you have a corresponding number of partners. Mm -hmm. That is the basic data source that I use. So you have the names of these people also where they lived, where they come from. So the town, is it Samuelo or someplace else? Sometimes also their um, occupation. Most of them were merchants themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, their um, titles, should they have any some of them were pity nobles, for instance. Mm -hmm. So these titles were mentioned as well. But most important, those shares. In there. So from that, I could reconstruct network. So people are related by virtue of sponsoring the same partnerships. And because they sponsored more than one partnership, 
then partnerships are linked with each other in a network. And people are linked because they have partners in many different kinds of partnerships. And from that grows a huge network that, you know, there are lots of pictures of that in the book as well. And then I did an analysis of these networks. So how cohesive is this network? That was my interest and what contributes to the cohesion. And bottom line is I found that privateering enterprise um, is the is the major component to ensure cohesion in this merchant community. That's in a nutshell hmm. what comes out of that. Interesting. Um, what uh, what did you find that most surprised you in this research? Most surprised? Oh, that's a good question. Very few surprises. Uh, well, sometimes, of course, you know, you read these things and then, huh, how about that? So, so you have the original document in your hands. In fact, you, of course, you wear gloves, right? But you have the original document in your name and then you encounter a name and uh, it's not really a surprise, but it's an interesting moment when you realize there's this guy Chateaubriand, which you know from history, and he actually signed this thing. There is his writing right there. Mm-hmm. So he must have hold that in his hands as well at some point in time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you see all these little notes and additions on the sides of the document. That is truly fascinating, you know, just to be a witness of, yeah, th- these documents that um, were around back then. It's maybe not surprising, but uh, it's an interesting moment. Yeah. Um, surprises, and I said, no, not really. It pretty much turned out the way I expected it to be in terms of the documents that I hope to find and what I found and also um, the results of the analysis match kind of the, my hunch that I had about this. Hmm. So, um, and I know there are a lot of, well, you said there's, there was a lot of material, but there was also obviously gaps in history. Was there a particular question you were really trying to dig at in your research and either you did find an adequate answer or you still would love to know like some, some aspect yeah, the most um, troublesome part is the profits. Yeah. It's extremely hard to get good figures on profits. Yeah. And so as an economic historian, you're, of course, interested in the question, was it worth it? Right. <laughs> so why did these people invest in it after all? It probably was worth it, but to what extent? How much was it worth it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very hard to find. Why? Well, you may have information for one voyage, how much it cost to fit it out, but then at the other end, you're lacking information about the outcome of that particular voyage mm. and vice versa. You may know the outcome. There are some documents there, but then you don't know how much of an investment had to be made in the beginning. So that is troublesome that you do not have the matching parts of the costs involved. And then at the other end, the other end, um, what is the outcome? That is unfortunate. I managed to unearth a couple of cases, mm-hmm. but um, that was probably the most complex part of the book to stitch that together, mm-hmm. to come up with a quasi-systematic argument there. That was very hard, and I wish there would be better evidence. But that's the way it is with history. You know, there are always lacunae, there are caveats. Mm-hmm. What part and of the that- research was most enjoyable for you? 
definitely going into the archives. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that's what I love most. Um, that's what I like about the historical work. It's like detective work. Mm. You, know, you go out hunting and you have a kind of a vague idea what this is all about. And um, it's at this early phase of a project where you're really excited about new ideas are always more exciting than once you've done the analysis. Yeah. That's for me is... Am I allowed to say that? It's the boring part. Yeah, it's fine. You can say that. <laughs> I, I don't really enjoy writing, I have to say. I've heard that. Before. I do enjoy having written something, yeah. but I don't enjoy the writing part. It is very hard work for me. Hmm. Uh, I don't take much joy. <laughs> Partly because I'm also perfectionist, so I would work. I'm, I'm not a linear writer, but um, I would work endlessly on single sentences. Uh, Hmm. until I like them. And uh, so that is extremely hard work. And I much rather prefer going into the archive, discovering these new things and uh, being a detective work. It's a bit like at the end of a detective novel, yeah. when you have to tell everyone, you know, like a Poirot brings them around and then tells them, so here's the solution. That's kind of boring when you know all of it, right? And then you have found the solution. And for you, it's crystal clear. Um, it's almost mundane what you have found, and you wonder, is anybody interested in that? I mean, it's so obvious what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, is, it is obvious because now you have found it, right? Mm -hmm. And so the earlier part is more exciting, I think. Did you come across anything that had a strong emotional impact on you? And that could be either positive or negative, you know, something humorous uh, or, or heart-wrenching maybe, I don't know. Well, heart wrenching in a sense when you read the stories, what I mean, the kinds of lives they lived mm -hmm. on board of these ships, that was extremely hard life. I'm glad that I wasn't a sailor back then. I think if I had lived at that time, I would have much rather preferred to be a noble person mm -hmm. in a mansion in the countryside, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, most definitely. Um, uh, these are heartbreaking stories sometimes, um, what happened to them, um, the kind of injuries they had. I mean, very little hope that you could save your life. Hmm. Um, that If you're stranded in the tropics somewhere and um, the only surgeon around tells you, well, the best you can do is hope for the best. There's nothing else I can do for you. Hmm. Um, that's kind of heartbreaking. Funny stories. Um, are there funny stories? Ah, not really. Well, kind of. Um, the, the, maybe there the the tendency for naming their ships uh, is kind of interesting. Um, so they were devout Catholics, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, all their sh lots of their ships are named for the Virgin Mary. Yeah. I, I, I personally find it kind of funny. <laughs> you have a fighting ship, after all, right? Yeah. But uh, you call it the, the Virgin Mary. <laughs> it's <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of yeah. odd, really. You know, why not uh, the devil or something like that? <laughs> no, it has to be the Virgin Mary all the time. Well, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what do you hope the book will do for readers? Well, I hope they find it interesting, first of all. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I care most about. Um, do they read it and think, that was an interesting story, and I learned something that I didn't know before. Um, it may not change my life. I don't expect that, right? It's a story that is back in history. But I learned something that was interesting. It captured my interest. Um, it was um, entertaining as well. And um, perhaps I have um, a different view on how life um, was back then, both in seaports um, as well as on board of these ships. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one lesson. 
Um, but of course, it's written for an academic audience mostly. I mean, I would be totally happy if also um, readers who are not academics would something to find something to enjoy in this book. Absolutely. Um, but I'm also realistic enough that I'm not a writer for a broader audience. So some of these sentences, non-academics will think, oh, God, can't you express this in a clearer, you know, <laughs> in some clearer plain English form that somebody can understand this? I mean, what's all this jargon in there? So I try to tone down all the jargon as much as possible. Uh, for those who haven't encountered the book yet, um, I pushed all the footnotes to the back so you can read the book without paying attention to any footnote if you like to do so. Yeah. And that's fine. You can just read the text, right? Mm -hmm. So I hope most will find it interesting. For academics, however, there are um, broader questions, uh, important questions that I hope I uh, contributed to for understanding them. That is, uh, one is... Um, this is all happening at the time of vast overseas expansion in um, early modern European history. Mm -hmm. And much of the work has a tendency to focus on these broad historical developments, you know, broad streams of exchanges between the continents and so forth. Um, what I'm missing very often is what happens actually locally mm -hmm. in those ports when we get down to the people who made these developments of early capitalism possible. How did they did they go about organizing these ventures? Mm -hmm. Because right. they are the basis, they are the foundation of making this these early movements of capitalism, this this early emergence of capitalism possible. And I hope I have contributed to a better or a deeper or further understanding of what happens on the ground. I mean, that is very important for me. Mm -hmm. And the other question that was driving me is that I hope my fellow social scientists will learn something about how social cohesion is possible in a community where there are limited means to achieve cohesion. Mm. So what can be used to achieve cohesion in a community? For them, it was important. They had to stick together if they were attacked from the outside. It was a port, a city right on the sea. Um, I don't know if anybody had a chance to visit Samalo. It's a seaport, very much exposed to the seas. Um, they have the highest tidal waves in Europe, hmm. but they are also prone to attacks. And if you're prone to attacks, um, you want to defend yourself. And you're better defending yourself if you stick together. So cohesion is very much important. You need to stick together as a community. Um, another example is um, they were competing with other French towns for trade privileges. And uh, the government wouldn't just hand out trade privileges on a regular basis because then they're no longer privileges if everyone can get them, right? Privilege mm -hmm. has to be limited. And so you're competing with other towns. And of course, you have a better chance to get those privileges, for instance, to become a free trade port. If you, if you come together um, as a unified town, as a collective voice, it's like... You know, a union is better for you than if you want something, than if you're trying to do something by yourself, try to achieve something for yourself, right? Mm. So um, I hope I make a contribution here showing, so under what conditions is cohesion possible and what role did privateering play in making that cohesion possible? But this is probably not of much interest to the average non-academic reader. For them, I just really hope that, you know, they find a colorful story in there. Mm -hmm. 
and maybe they now have um, an idea for a new vacation destination. Yeah, yeah it would be cool to see <laughs> it, the history. But go in the summertime, and hopefully when this whole situation is um, turns out to be better, that we can actually travel again. Um, it, it's a wonderful city to visit, in mm. fact. Um, does, it, does the city have a lot of um, buildings or, or sites from this period that people can see? Do you know? Yes, um, it is almost like a Disneyland. Um, so uh, you have, it's like an islet that sits out in the sea. So the modern part of the city is inland with the train station and so forth. But the old town where most of these people lived is, um, is a little island that's only connected by a dam to the mainland. Hmm. And um, it's, it's, it's a small place. Um, this Chateaubriand guy that I mentioned earlier, he related it to the Tuileries Gardens in Paris. Maybe some of our listeners are familiar with that. Um, if not, imagine um, Central Park. Yeah. In fact, I would guess that Central Park is in fact larger than the town of Saint-Malo. So it's a tiny place, a tiny islet. It has an old medieval wall around it. And then it has these um, stone houses, which are three to four stories high mm -hmm. and are made out of granite. And they're kind of glistening in the sun. It's a kind of grayish, silvery color. Mm -hmm. It looks really beautiful from the seas. The catch of the story is, however, this entire city was unfortunately raided in World War II towards the end mm -hmm. because uh, my fellow countrymen, the Germans, had no better idea but um, to hold themselves up in the city. Yeah. And the Allies, of course, thought, you know, we need to get these German forces out of there and mm -hmm. they just won't leave. So the only option was to bomb it. Mm -hmm. And so there were massive air raids, and uh, I think it was up to 90% of this medieval town was destroyed. Oh. It was just razed to the ground, essentially. Mm. And um, so after the war, there were two options. Just scrap it, and we built a modern city. Or, and this is what they did, is let's rebuild it. Mm -hmm. So they still had the blueprints, and um, they knew the material, so they decided, let's reconstruct, rebuild our city in the same way that it looked like before the war. And that's what they did. Hmm. So uh, when you actually get there, you see first, well, oh, there's an old town, etc. It looks a little bit too perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, that's, and the reason is that right? it has been reconstructed. A few buildings have survived, but most of them have been built after 1945 or rebuilt. Mm -hmm. but, but it's it's still it's it's a beautiful town. I mean, it still gives you the opportunity to see what what this old town was like. Yes, you know, yeah. If, if they matched yeah. it to what it was yeah. before, they even have a museum. So one of the surviving buildings is um, from one of the guys who are very prominent in the book as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Magon de la Lande, and his townhouse is still preserved. And there's a museum inside that shows you how these ship owners lived back then. Mm -hmm. um, that is very interesting. Also in the surrounding countryside, you can visit to this very day um, the manor houses that they built or bought for themselves um, mm -hmm. when they made enough money out of that. Um, they're beautiful mansions. Um, you, you can visit them as well. They don't have any ships or rebuilt ships from that time or models do they 
Yeah, there is one that is uh, moored somewhere in the harbor that you can, I mean, they, they take out um, trips out into the harbor and then you can see um, the town also from the seaside. I would recommend that if you ever have a chance to visit the city, um, take a harbor trip. It's very much worth it. Mm. And you can also take it on one of these sailing ships that they have um, reconstructed, I guess. Um, I don't think it is, it's, um, it is a surviving ship. It's a small one, though. Okay. That's definitely there, but it's worthwhile. Did you have any trouble getting the book finished or published? Finished? Yes. Published? No. Yeah. <laughs> so getting it finished was a chore, definitely. Uh, it's always, you know, uh, uh, the members of our family went, are you still working on that? I can't believe it. How long does that take to write a book? It does take a long time, definitely. Um, it's also the first book that I've written. I'm I'm in a sub-discipline where you mostly write articles that are published in journals. And I thought, okay, I have shown that I can do this, and I have a story here that uh, unfolds much better in a book than in an article. So I thought, that's a good idea. I should write a book. Uh, my former academic advisor also encouraged me and said, so my doctoral advisor said, yeah, you should write a book. <laughs> if he had known oh well anyway <laughs> and um and i absolutely underestimated the difference between writing an article and writing a book it's a different story um i just thought well book has set, has seven uh, chapters this one at least so they have about the length of an article it's like writing seven articles it can't be that difficult no it's very much different <laughs> yeah that there has to be a thread that connects the uh, chapters into a coherent story mm -hmm. they're not just sitting next to each other without any connection whatsoever that's not a book i mean you can call it a book but it's not a book mm -hmm. the book needs to tell a story it needs to have a narrative arc that takes you from some place to another place and tells a story essentially it has to have a narrative mm -hmm. and i realized that only when I was writing that, well, you better work on that narrative. And that took a long time. And then, of course, I encountered all sorts of problems with the data. That was that threw me back by at least two years, if not longer. Oh, wow. Um, so the data set was put together with the help of research assistants, of course, you can't do it alone. These are tens of thousands of entries. Um, so there are about 25,000 people in there over this entire time period and keeping track of them all. You need help by some students. Mm -hmm. And um, I trained them in coding and so forth. And then after the second year or so, um, we had the data set ready. And I looked at it and then I figured, there's so many mistakes in there. What's going on there? And some of them were systematic. So you could trace for many of these mistakes what the source was of the mistake. But for others, they were idiosyncratic mistakes. Mm -hmm. I realized, oh, no, I have to go through the entire data set again by myself and having the originals next to it. So I had to cross-check every single entry with its original document where it was coming from. And that took me another two or three years to clean up the data set. So that was another problem there. Um, the publishing part was the easier one in comparison. Mm -hmm. So as I said, um, I talked to my advisor in this case, and he encouraged me to write it. And he also happened to be the series editor. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, back then, I only had a book proposal, a proceed, like a rough outline what I was planning on doing. The book wasn't even written. And uh, he was nice enough to bring it to the attention of the press, 
um, then the uh, whoever this whoever the powers are who decides whether a book has been taken or not, kind of a council, I guess, at an editorial committee at the press. Um, they liked it well enough. It was sent out to reviewers. Um, the reviews were very positive, very encouraging. So I took it from there and then went into the writing part. So you got a pre-contract essentially, mm-hmm. um, which is, it makes you feel better because you think you have a contract. Of course, for the press, it's, it's an option value, right? Sure. They still have the option of rejecting it. It's no guarantee that it's going to be published, sure. but it makes you feel much better if you do have a pre-contract. Mm-hmm. And, um, there were deadlines. They got pushed back <laughs> every single year. Um, I had a very patient editor who worked with me. Um, Eric is his name. Um, he is absolutely fantastic at the press. And, um, and also his assistant, Lowell, um, you know, they, they helped me, supported me, kept encouraging me. And eventually the manuscript emerged. And then that went again to, um, to reviewers. Um, who made suggestions, then you have to respond to them or make the changes necessary to the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And then you hand it in. And then you think you're done, but you aren't. <laughs> so you're talking about funny part. That was the funny part or the hard part I discovered. So you hand in the manuscript, you think that's it. No, not at all. Then comes the proof reading stage. So it goes back to proof reading editor. And uh, she did an amazing work. So she went through the entire manuscript. I got it back. And I thought there would be a few annotations every now and then. No, they went through every single sentence yeah. and made suggestions. So I, again, went through every single sentence and accepted or did not accept, uh, made the necessary changes. Uh, that took a while as well. That went back. You know, uh, then you get the preprints. They come back. You check them again. Of course, there will be some mix- mistakes that occur. Mm, right. uh, so um, until finally you have the proofs, and um, that is the stage, of course, where you're no longer permitted to make major changes because it would be too costly. Yeah. And when I had the proofs, I knew that okay, now it's nearly done. Yeah, nearly. So it was. It's a very long process. So if there any prospective book authors out there who are listening to us just be prepared it's a wonderful journey but it's a long journey so uh, you need to bring in stamina do do you have a current project you're working on book um yeah more than one um so i set the privateers aside for now um they need uh, i need to give them a rest for a while maybe i return to them and see if there are any other questions left over that i would like to address Mm. Um, but currently I'm working on very different, uh, projects. Uh, one is about the careers of politicians in parliament, mm. how they build their careers. And it's a comparison of the German and the French parliament. Mm. So how do you work yourself, um, up from the, uh, how you build a career essentially, um, being in a political party, then taking jobs and committees and so forth. Um, mm. And it turns out there's a huge varieties of career paths that politicians, career politicians can take. Mm. Um, so this is one project. Um, then I'm working with a doctoral student of mine on a project on uh, New Hollywood, something very different again. Mm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a movement in film history in the 70s 
that emerged and uh, it was a revolution in filmmaking mm-hmm. and uh, we're interested in understanding how they were so successful in revolutionizing filmmaking in Hollywood and becoming so successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a study of a social movement. It's again a social network study. So we're looking at the networks that these people formed uh-huh. um, to become a successful movement in filmmaking. Huh. Interesting. Um, um there's even more. Uh, there's another one that's the last one I mentioned on uh, the organization of the taxi cab industry in Manhattan. Yeah. So we have wonderful data. This is with a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one year's worth of data on all the trips that the taxi cab drivers took, the yellow cabs in Manhattan, for every single day, every single hour for one year. Wow. Where did they start their voyage, uh, their journeys, and where did they end? How many passengers did they pick up along the way? And we hope that it gives us a lens to understand how uh, the, the work day of a cab driver is organized, how the industry is organized. Hmm. Interesting. Very different projects from this one. Um, hmm. But this is exciting, I hope. Not sure if books will come out of that. <laughs> we'll see. But, yeah. So, um, do you have some? Uh, do you have a website or social media where people can follow updates to your work or thoughts or whatever? I mean, you can just punch in my name into Google, and it will pop up. Interestingly enough, um, it, it's right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not super active on social media. I have to confess. Mm-hmm. Um, up until two years ago, I didn't even have a cell phone, for instance. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that was my little um, space of freedom yeah. that I would reserve for myself. I'm um, saying for social media. So, um, okay. so far, I have been resistant. Um, uh, maybe I will um, venture into that world. But so far, no, I haven't been doing that. But um, you will find me easily for some reason um, if you just punch in my name. And um, there's a university website um, where there are links to the other work that I'm doing, um, a description, of course, of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my CV can be found there. And the links will lead you directly to the journal article should you be interested in that. And I'll spell your name. It's H-E-N-N-I-N-G. Henning, right. is that correct? And Hillman. Yes. H-I-L-L-M-A-N-N. Right. It's double N at the end. So, fortunately, um, in the English-speaking context, um, the, uh, the the second N of my last name gets dropped on a regular basis. I have gotten, I've gotten used to it. It's just fine, you know. Uh, uh, so, I mean, I spent, uh, I was raised academically mostly in the U.S., so I got I went to grad school in the U.S. I did my undergrad in Germany, but then moved to the U.S. Mm. Um, did my graduate studies um, at Columbia University in New York. Got my PhD there, and then got my first job at Stanford. Mm. So uh, I spent 13 years in total in the U.S. And, and therefore, I've gotten used to all sorts of spellings <laughs> of my name. That's just fine. You know? okay. All right. Even my American friends to this very day often just drop the second end. They you know? just, because, you know, that's what you're used to. It's just perfectly fine. Yeah. It's the silent end, right? They just let it go. Exactly. <laughs> um, right. Uh, all right. Well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, parting thoughts or words? No, I think I talked enough already. So um, It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I hope uh, listeners will get something interesting out of that. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, very much for this wonderful opportunity. In the next episode, I speak with Ed Sherwood, who both participated in 
and wrote a book on the 101st Airborne's participation at the Battle of Tam Key in Vietnam. Bullseye the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Military History Inside Out. If you want more interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Warscholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, Sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. If you want interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and my podcast, Technology and Space. Thanks for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.